you will, open your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 16 in just a moment, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 8. We're going to read verses 16 through 25 in just a moment. We have been thinking uh, as we have worked our way uh, through this particular gospel, and as I've mentioned, we have been uh, gospel-saturated this year. We've had a number of opportunities uh, to, to listen and to study and to think about uh, what is being done in these various gospel accounts. That is, that we have uh, four writers who under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit have uh, selected episodes and uh, selected instructions from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, to, to prove that He is who they assert that He is. He is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. He is the Son of David and He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And so as we read these gospel accounts, we see again uh, the various techniques that are employed uh, by these writers, the testimonies that they uh, bring to the, to the front to, to prove their point. As uh, Luke said to Theophilus, to, to, so that you may know with certainty these things. And so even 2,000 years later, we can take the inspired word and the, in, uh, the indwelling Spirit takes that word and it gives us a sense of certainty about who Jesus is and what He's done, that we can believe uh, what He says and we can trust in what He has done. And so today, as we continue in chapter 8, we're going to uh, look in the next two or maybe even three Sundays at five testimonies to the authority and the power of ultimately the identity of Jesus Christ. And so read with me, if you will, verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his fathers came, came to, mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And, and, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water, and that they obey him? 
pray with me. Father, once again, thank you for your word, your testimony to us. Again, uh, the revelation of your Son, uh, the reality of your gospel. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would be at work among us today. Uh, Lord, that he would bring conviction where uh, conviction is needing and bring comfort where comfort is needed. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be reminded that Jesus has returned uh, to his home region, his, his old stomping grounds in and around uh, the Sea of Galilee or the lake called Tiberias. It's known by a number of, of names in uh, the Bible. And so he is ministering there, having already been to Jerusalem at least once and uh, uh, upset the apple cart, so to speak, there. And he's moving uh, back to this backwater region of Galilee and continuing uh, to minister there. He's instructing and he's uh, uh, preaching and also performing uh, great miracles, demonstrating his authority and his power. Last week we looked at what I think is a, a very important and ultimately a, a very informative uh, parable, this parable of the seeds or the sower of the soils, whichever way you want to refer to it. But it, but it says something to us about the gospel and its impact and how that even when the gospel is preached, there will be those that reject it out of hand and then there will be those that respond to it initially but ultimately fall away proving that indeed they never truly believed the gospel. They never came to closure with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were never born again. But the seed that, that falls on that good soil ultimately is fruitful and productive and produces a bountiful harvest. And so Jesus again speaks to the issue of the impact of the message and impact of the people of the message as he begins to speak about lamps and light. Now, he begins there in verse 16, no one. That is a universal negative. Sometimes uh, you, when someone says everybody, what they mean is if you're not included in the everybody, that there's something wrong with you. And when, when somebody says nobody, then that, that means if, uh, if you are not one of the nobodies, then you're in trouble as well. And so Jesus is being emphatic here that the normative way of thinking, that is it is absolutely absurd to think that someone would light a lamp and then place it under some type of cover so the lamp or the light would not accomplish its purpose. Now, how many of you remember singing, I see some grins, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Remember that? Hide it under a bushel. There you go, you got it. All right. Well, again, that builds on this really probably a proverb, not so much a parable here. But Jesus simply says that when you light a lamp, you intend for that lamp or for that light to be used to accomplish its purpose, namely to illuminate and guide. Now, those of you that have been here a while know this is true of me. It's not a big secret. I'm afraid of the dark. I do not like dark, okay? Uh, if I go into a room and the light's not on, I turn the light on. Now, part of that's practical in that I'm not real good about picking up after myself. Well, again, a little, little self, you know, self-confessions, good for the soul, but uh, I don't want to trip over my shoes or books or who knows what else could be laying in the floor. 
But, uh, yeah, I, I like the light. I like to be able to see where I am going. And, and there's just kind of an anxiety about me when I come, uh, you know, kind of stumbling around in the darkness. And, of course, again, if you have a light, then you use it to illuminate so that you can see where you're going so you don't fall, stumble, all of these th- type things. So the purpose of light is that it be shined to, be, uh, to illuminate and to guide and to expose. Now, the question, or at least one of the questions in our text is to who does the lamp or to what does the lamp or the light refer? And sometimes when you read the commentaries, well, it's talking about Jesus. And others would say it's talking about us, his disciples. Now, I don't think, I don't think those, those concepts are mutually exclusive, okay? That, that is, that there is a, a truth here that Jesus' purpose in coming into the world is that he would be the light of God He is the light of the world. In him was life, and that light was the light of of all men. He is the light that gives light to all men. All of these things. So it is a testimony about Jesus and the reality that ultimately he is the light. And he came to be on full display. Okay? He reveals God perfectly and clearly. It also refers to the reality as the disciples of Jesus Christ, having experienced His life and light personally, then we have the assignment and we experience the reality. Jesus didn't say you're going to be the light of the world. He said you are the light of the world. So we are the light for the world. We're the light in the world. And so we are to be so affected, so impacted, so transformed by the reality of our encounter with Jesus Christ, that we display God's light in our world. We display His reality. And again, there's a kind of a third component of this. The Bible speaks of itself. Psalm 119, you are a, a light into my path and a light into my way. Okay, And, and so again, the disciple, having experienced life and light in Jesus, having this lamp, the Word of God, we are, we are affected and transformed by this light so that we may display the goodness and the glory of God in the world so that men and women and boys and girls throughout the world may see and may hear from our lips this message of life and light. If you turn on this kind of caught my attention. Go to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it seems like Paul somewhat gets at this concept. As light, as disciples, as believers, as the light in the world, is our light internally um, generated? Is it internally generated, or is it reflected? And I think the answer is yes. That, that is, I think, and, and Paul gets at that, that idea here in, in kind of drawing an analogy between the experience of Moses. As he went into that tabernacle, he came into the very Shekinah glory, presence of God, and he got sunburned. 
It's before they came out with really good sunscreen. No. Something about that, that glory of God radiant before him, visibly radiant, made his face shine. And so when he would come out of that tabernacle, he would veil his play, face because that, even that reflected glory overwhelmed those sinful Israelites that were traveling uh, with him. And so we have an experience of encountering this glorious reality of who God is in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in some degree we reflect His radiance, okay? And then there's another aspect of it, because of the power of His Word, we are internally transformed. Look at verse 18. We are being transformed. We are being changed. There is a dynamic going on within us. From the outside, the radiance of Jesus Christ, and from the inside, the transforming work of the Spirit and the Word. And, and here's the thing, and, and, and we've got a, a wonderful group in here today. I'm so thankful that people are, are starting to, to return to this essential service that is the gathered body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Apostle Paul uh, says that, that in some way, when we encounter fellow believers, that we, having the unveiled faces, we look at each other and we see, we see a testimony to the radiance and glory of God in one another's face. That's why we need to see each other in person, or at least one of the reasons. We need to see each other, that, that, that when we see one another's countenance, we can say that countenance is marked by the Spirit of God. When we hear one another speak, when we say, my Jesus, I love you, I know thou art mine, we need to hear each other say that together. So there's important realities that take place when we gather together so that we may function. Reality, we're the light of the world, okay? But we may function effectively, efficiently, so that, so that we're effective sowers of gospel seed that those seeds go everywhere, that we can't help but just everywhere we go, seeds just fall out from us. Or the gospel will take effect and people will be saved. And so, Jesus and the disciples, according to the plan of God, the light, the gospel is not being hidden, it is being put on display whether we think of it as Jesus, whether we think of it as the disciples, we are put on display in the world for the sake of others seeing this testimony to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, speaking of the power of the light, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Not going to be any secrets. Now, So y'all think, and I do too, I'm going to get by with it. Don't you? I mean, you think those terrible thoughts, right? You mutter those things under your breath, don't you? You have those thoughts standing in line at Walmart, right? You do, Amen, yeah. And you think it's a secret. But all things will be made manifest, and they will be judged according to the light, according to to the Word of God. There is a day. Now, kind of, when we think about end times, there's kind of two aspects of judgment. Or actually, I guess three. There is that moment immediately after death, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then judgment. 
where your destiny is affirmed, okay? Affirmed. Heaven or hell, one way or the other. No in-betweens, heaven or hell. There also seems to be a time of evaluation of the believer's life, okay? That may come later. And then, of course, there's the evaluation of the unbeliever's life, okay? And remember this. No one that winds up in hell will be there because of injustice. They will not be sent there unjustly. The standard will be God's revelation. Now, we know revelation takes two two forms, doesn't it? Revelation in the Word, okay, that's very specific, very clear. And then there's general revelation. Revelation in the Word is the means through which God saves us. We hear testimony to the life and the death the accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe it. We receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we're saved. There is a non-saving revelation. God testifies to Himself in our conscience and in the realities of nature. Apostle Paul says our problem with that is we suppress it. In our unrighteousness, we take the things that should be very, very clear about God, and we suppress them, and we come up with all manner of evil and all manner of perversion and all manner of of false religions, false ideologies, false philosophies, so forth and so on. And so, the power of the light is that ultimately it is going to be the standard and it's going to expose everything. And and there's, there's really a reality in the here and now. When the Word is preached... It always produces the harvest. It never, Isaiah, never returns void. And there's some level which we see the evidence of the fruitful sowing of the Word of God. Okay? And so, again, even now, even in here now, not perfectly, not perfectly, but we can see the evidence of the work of the seed of the gospel taking place and bearing witness in and among us. And then Jesus warns us there in in verse 18, what seems like, you know, uh, seems very unfair. You know, it seems like, you know, there's a a great movement to to take from the haves and give to to the have-nots. The government wants to take more and more and so forth and so on and give to the have-nots. Well, Jesus flips that around. He says, take care how you hear, for the one who has more will be given. The one who receives this word and believes it and begins to be nurtured under the, the sound and authority of the word of God, they will grow and they will increase in wisdom and knowledge. But what? Those who persist in their hostility, those that persist in their rejection, they will become more and more hostile. They will become more and more hard. They will become more and more resistant to the truth and the power of the gospel. And so again, we have a responsibility to bring the light of the gospel to bear upon ourselves each and every day to go into that Word and to immerse ourselves in that Word so that God will what? Give to us more and more and more, that we would grow in His grace and knowledge, that we would grow in our, in our confidence and our courage and even in our sense of, of calm. Well, let's look at the second issue here. 
I call it a redefined family. In fact, we can speak of the first little section, that fancy word for the day, the first pericope. The first pericope of the lamp under a jar it has to do with the purpose of disciples. And this second pericope has to do with the priorities of disciples. And then the final episode has to do with the perplexity of the disciples. So there's your three P's if you want to do a little alliteration here this morning. So, a redefined family. Now, there's always extremists. And I want you to understand for certain, Jesus is not saying here, nor does he say anywhere else, nor does the Bible support anywhere else, that the nuclear biological family is of no importance. That is not what's going on here, okay? You need to understand that the Bible affirms the importance of mothers and fathers and their children and uh, all things related uh, to the family, okay? But Jesus does say something very important about family here. Now, there's at least four places in the Gospels that there's some interaction, some give and take, some uh, messages sent to Jesus uh, from his family. Matthew 10 and Matthew 12 and Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3 particularly, the family had gotten so concerned about Jesus, they thought he had lost his mind. And essentially, we need to go get him and protect him from himself, or if nothing else, protect him. We know he's already ticked off everybody. All these Pharisees and all, they're gunning for him. So let's get him and take him home and maybe he'll get better. Maybe he'll get over it. And so uh, while these crowds swarming around Jesus, the, the family comes, the, his mother, and seems likely maybe Joseph had, had passed away by this time, and his brothers, they, they come, they couldn't, couldn't get to him, so they send somebody. Somebody comes to Jesus and says, your family is outside waiting for you. And his response to that information probably maybe strikes us as a bit cold. And again, to the uninitiated, the uninformed, many times Jesus is, is really sharp. See, I'm always so gentle and, and sweet. And everything I say just drips like honey from my lips. I never have an edge to anything that I would ever say that... Those of you who read your Bible sometimes say, well, God, Jesus, I don't even know if Jesus is as nice as Pastor Tim is, you know. But Jesus has a point in the rebuff or the rebuke here. He wants them to understand there is a kingdom priority. Now, here's the thing. And this says something to us as, as biological families nuclear families, however you want to uh, refer to that. That the spiritual realities for those that know Jesus Christ do ultimately take priority and they are the ones that are eternal. That it, it is very possible for believing parents to have believing children or other types of family members that do not ultimately believe the gospel and do not enter into the kingdom of heaven, and therefore they are separated forever. Okay? It is those of us, as we, as we look here, as much as I love my biological family, okay, as I, as I look at this group here, those of us that are born again, 
we will be together in eternity. And there is a priority even to that relationship now. And so many times, so many times, you'll see it work its way out right here in time and space. How many of us, I'm not asking for raising of hands, I'm simply saying have family members who are in an an unbelieving state. And if any mention is made of biblical truth and the need for repentance and and the hope of, of their being converted, it immediately, it immediately frosts the entire relationship over. It is something, we're not going to talk about it, I don't want to hear it, you're judging me, whatever. And Jesus said what? I didn't come to bring peace. My primary purpose in coming into the world is, is not that, that we you know, join hands and sing kumbaya and walk off into the sunset. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division, and it's going to divide families. And folks... For 2,000 years, even 7,000 years or 10,000 years, it's been dividing families. Think of the first one, Cain and Abel. The gospel, it unites, it creates, it sustains. That that is true. How is the church sustained? It is certainly not by anybody, mine or anybody else, by our personality, our charisma, our leadership, our organization, the thing that sustains the church of the living God and will ensure that it endures to the day that Jesus Christ returns is the very presence of the Spirit of God and the proclamation of the truth of the Word of God. And that will be sustained and it will endure. But as long as we're faithful and as long as we proclaim the truth, there will be division. And it's not just in families. It can be in the workplace. It can be in the community. In any type of place where there's relationships, the gospel, and even more so as we move forward into the days ahead, the gospel is going to divide. And so Jesus identifies this great priority for the people of God to to love and to serve and to live together as the people of God, created, united, and sustained by the Spirit and Word of God, being not just hearers. I'm not going to have you turn there, but you could go to James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. He has a lot to say about the hearers of the Word and the doers. has a lot to say, even following that, about faith and works and the intrinsic and essential, the necessary relationship between faith and the way faith works its way out into our lives. It it affects the things that we say, the things we do, our attitude toward things, uh, our our, uh, activities is all defined and it's all energized by the Word of God. And so, uh, the priority of the disciple is that we be a united, even a, a family known as the people or the family of God. Let's look at this third issue uh, this morning. Again, the perplexity of uh, these disciples. Uh, we're told they go on a boat ride. That sounds like, you know, it's Labor Day weekend. Everybody ought to be up for a boat ride. That seems like a good time to, to preach uh, this uh, particular uh, passage. And so we're told, and 
my guess is maybe there's a little bit of time that, that passes through these previous, from these uh, previous episodes. And so one day, a little bit later on, and, and Jesus seemed to use the, the Sea of Galilee as a bit of a buffer. Uh, that is, his hand was on the throttle as to how fast uh, uh, people were going to be swept up in the Jesus movement. Okay, Because typically when they got swept up in the Jesus movement, they got caught up for the wrong reasons. Okay, uh, Oh, you're going to give us bread? Hey, if we, if we can get bread from you every day, we're in. Okay, If you're going to be the king that, that conquers the Romans, we're in. And so uh, Jesus would speak and he would heal. And then he would say, let's go across the lake. Let's go across the lake. Back and forth, back and forth it seems as though he goes. And, and so uh, we're told that, that he uh, one day he gets into this boat with the, these fishermen disciples, uh, you know, several of those, uh, James and John, Peter, uh, they're, they're all fishermen. And he says, Let, let's go uh, across the lake. There you see uh, probably a boat not unlike what they would have gotten in. That is from uh, uh, Tanzania last year out on Lake Victoria. When I posted that image, a friend of mine, and I'm not sure he knows what he's talking about, he said that's very much like the boats that the fishermen would use in Jesus' day. You can actually Google boats in Jesus' day. They actually have found one uh, in a drought a few years ago when the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee, when the sea level dropped or the lake level dropped. They actually found a boat that was probably from that era. And yes, indeed, it probably is pretty similar. Uh, to that right there. Just a very simple uh, type of, of sailboat. Some of them didn't have sails. Some of them did have sails. But Jesus determines to take a boat ride. It's for a particular reason, to put time and space between him and uh, the crowds. And so uh, they take off. I'm sure uh, those fishermen, they were like, hey, we got this. We, 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 we may not understand everything that, about Jesus, but buddy... We got sailing on the Sea of Galilee. We got that down pat. We can handle that. That is under our charge. Well, as they're sailing, Jesus falls asleep. Uh, I think uh, the other accounts speak of a cushion there uh, in, in the bow. So he fell asleep, and a windstorm uh, came down uh, on the lake. Now, the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, that, that describe this, uh, Matthew's language um, communicates the idea of a, of a whirlwind, and Mark's language communicates the idea of like an earthquake at sea. This was bad. This was rough. It, it was something that shook these fishermen that had spent every day of their life fishing out there on that body of water. They had probably encountered every type of storm imaginable. And, and the Sea of Galilee is particularly susceptible to these very volatile weather conditions. Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. 700 feet uh, below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. All around it, particularly on the east side, there are mountain ranges. Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet uh, high. That's, uh, they call Denver the mile high city. Okay, that's considerably higher than Denver, Colorado. In fact, today on Mount Hermon, uh, the only ski resort in Israel is on the top of Mount Hermon. So it's cold enough up there for snow and so forth. And so what have you got? Mediterranean Sea, warm, moist air, off of the mountains, cold air, 
They collide in this area where the Sea of Galilee is and can produce terrible, life-threatening storms. And this one was so bad that it had these very experienced seamen had them concerned. They, they were screaming and, and hollering. And, and again, if you read the, the, the different accounts, some of them call him Master, some of them call him other, Lord, some of them call him Teacher. In other words, they're all hooping and hollering is the point. Jesus, Jesus, Master, Master. I mean, this, well, hey, this thing is about to go, not south, but go down to the bottom of the lake here. We're, we're in trouble. We're upset. Now, in my reading this week, and guess one of the commentaries I utilized, John MacArthur, uh, he speaks of this, he outlines it in regards to Jesus, the, the calm before the storm, the calm during the storm, and the calm after the storm. Okay, So Jesus is completely calm through the whole thing. He is calm knowing as they get into the boat, guess what? They're about to enter a storm. He's, he's about to shake these boys up. You know, he's about to shake these guys up. And so he uh, awakens and Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And, and they ceased and there was calm. Now, Jesus had been demonstrating Authority and power. That's, we've got that record already. We've ran across accounts where we see Jesus healing diseases and doing other things that, that absolutely amazed these disciples. And when the storm is calm and the disciples have quit fretting and whining and carrying on. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something politically incorrect. And actually, the president of the PGA got fired for something, saying something like this about five or six years ago. But they were acting like a bunch of little girls. Okay? All right? You can Google the PGA bit. They literally, and the guy they were addressing, Ian Poulter, doesn't act like a little girl. He deserves what he got. So anyway, they were acting like a bunch of sissies. And Jesus asked them, where is your faith. You've been with me. You have heard me. You have experienced something of my authority and power. And he wants them to think very deeply. And I, not only does Jesus ask these disciples, but folks, he asked the membership of North Clay Baptist Church and everybody else that's sitting here today and everybody under the sound of my voice. He asked us this question where is your faith now I know some of it well you know when I was at VBS when I was three years old I, I, I waddled down an aisle and I, no that's not yes there is a, a, an aspect of initial faith have you been converted okay have you been born again but where is your faith in the overarching and undergirding the overwhelming reality of God's sovereign authority in your life. No matter what the storm, no matter what the trouble, where's your faith? Now sometimes, and again, the question is asked, because sometimes, I've, I've told you before, I have to rehearse this stuff some mornings. 
Who is sovereign over the issues and the affairs of my day today? Who is guiding my step? Who is indwelling me to give me wisdom and insight and to guide me through every single storm? One of my favorite contemporary uh, Christian songs, Even If, Mercy Me. Even if you don't. I know you can, but even if you don't, seems to build upon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Being exposed to the fire. I'm not telling you. Sometimes we get singed, and sometimes believers get consumed, and sometimes that consummation is absolutely literal. Okay? But even if you don't, I'm trusting in you. Remember Wednesday night, I know everybody was watching on Facebook, so don't raise your hands. I know you got this. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, who else are you going to rely upon and where else are you going to go in the troubled storm, in a time of difficulty and affliction? Who is going to deliver you? And if, again, I mean, death is a bad thing. I had to do a funeral this week. I hate doing funerals. I want people to live. But if death comes, what happens for the believer? And so, where is your faith? Where is your trust that God is working in all things for the good of those who love Him, that that He has worked all things according to the counsel of His own will? He, He has worked out perfectly in His sovereign wisdom how many of these hairs turn gray and how many of these hairs turn loose. If He's got that, He's got everything else. And I say that as a person that does get anxious, that does get fearful, that does get fretful, but you know what I get fretful about? That something's going to cause me some pain or loss because I want everything to be my way. But let me tell you something. We want everything to be God's way for God's glory, and we can rest and we can trust in that. Where's your faith? Just as, just as easily as Jesus spoke the word and the storm was ceased, He can see us through or He can deliver us out of whatever the peril is. He will be faithful. And of those the Father has given Him, He will lose none. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. I will raise them up at the last day. Yeah. Where is your faith? Now, here's the coolest thing, and I'm so glad Brian Stanley's here today, so I can brag on him today. This is a little Brian Stanley thing that he taught me. They were really scared of the storm. Until they realized the guy they had signed up to follow was more powerful than the storm itself. Now, but <laughs> that's sobering. Now, I've gotten, I've gotten caught in storms before. Years ago, back when golfers wore steel spikes, they had little steel nails on the bottom of your spikes. 
We were up on Sand Mountain, and I mean in the middle of nowhere, couldn't get back to a shelter or anything. We got caught in a lightning storm. And me and my friend looked at him and said, you know what, our mama's raised smarter boys than this. I mean, I, I, was, I was scared. I know what it is to be scared in the weather, in a storm. Be, be frightened that, that something, that you're going to be harmed in the midst of, of a situation like that. But these guys realized, you know what, as powerful as a storm is, this guy is more powerful than the storm. And, and, and so, they, it says they were afraid. They, they were trembling. This got their attention. You going to trust the storm? You going to trust the one that stills the wind and the waves? You going to you going to trust the master of the sea? Remember that old gospel song? He's the master of the sea? Yeah. That's him. He is the master of the sea. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Now, I think Luke leaves us hanging here a bit, and I will too, because what he's building for in future chapters is this great confession that Peter is going to utter about who he has come to believe that Jesus Christ is. But this Jesus stands with us in every circumstance as sovereign over every circumstance he he may choose to let the storm continue the storm may in some sense overwhelm us but he will be faithful and he will deliver each and every one of us home and so, we see, in this, this last step, we see kind of a contrast. We see a calm Jesus and a distressed disciples. We see a powerful Jesus and a, a weak and powerless disciple. We see a courageous Jesus and a confident Jesus. And we see fearful and frightened disciples. What a, what a contrast. And nothing has changed about Jesus' disciples to this day. It don't take much to shake us up, does it? But nothing, nothing ever moves our Savior. And so, what are the storms? I'm, I'm not big on allegories and metaphors. I'm not, I don't teach what are the five sto- stones you're going to gather to slay your giants. But there is a reality here. There is a lesson. It's not just specifically, if you happen to be on the Sea of Galilee on a rickety old boat, well, Jesus will come steal your storm. It does apply to us 2,000 years later. Jesus is calm. He is collected. And He is there with us. And He is there to guide us. And He is there to provide us, provide for us. He is not only our good sailor, He is our good shepherd that will take us through these dark valleys. He may prepare the table in the presence of those enemies, or He may slay the enemies. It's up to Him. But as He says in the Great Commission, all authority and power has been granted to me, and I will be with you. 
I will be with you even until the end of the age. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us. God is... I've tried to communicate your truth. I've tried to rightly divide. But God, the only way that anything of any eternal virtue and value will ever be accomplished is through the work of your Spirit. We thank you that your Spirit saw fit to inspire and preserve these words for us as a testimony to us. And now we would ask that same Spirit to work in each of us so that we would know your grace and your glory, that we would be transformed, that we would be a light in a world that the shadows are growing increasingly longer with each passing moment. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.